This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. I'm here with Professor Andrew Coates from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Pleasure. Um, to give you a quick introduction, um, you got your BSc in physics um, here from, from UMIST, didn't you? So yeah. uh, well, welcome back to Manchester. Thank you. <laughs> um, since then, you've uh, done your MSc and DPhil in plasma physics from uh, Oxford University. And uh, as well as being part of the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, um, you've also held positions at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Physics in Germany and uh, the University of Delaware in the USA. And uh, you've had a media fellowship at the BBC World Service, I see. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you're now Deputy Director um, Solar System at the at UCL MSSL, and uh, you lead the, the PANCAM team for the ExoMars 2020 rover. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting career so far, it seems. Um, I've been so lucky with my career, actually. Yeah, yeah. I see you've been uh, involved with and, and led aspects of a, a fair few space missions, uh, including Cassini and the Venus and Mars Expresses. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the, these projects you've been involved with? Yeah, some Cassini of the highlights? Was, uh, was something which was absolutely amazing. I mean, this was something which, uh, which happened after the first mission I was involved with, really, was the Giotto mission to, Hall- to Halley's Comet some years ago, um, so back in 1986, and actually just before that we had a practice with an artificial comet mission which was the anti mission but then cassini um we started that in um, in 1989 so uh, that's when we wrote the proposal for the instruments so sort of 28 years ago um so it's been a huge part of my career actually working on cassini so I was lucky enough to lead the electron spectrometer, which is part of the Cassini plasma spectrometer. And we made lots of fantastic discoveries at, at uh, Saturn itself, but also at Titan, at Enceladus, and at some of the other moons of Saturn. So that um, has been, you know, one of the amazing things to be able to be involved in that mission really from the start, see it through as we built the instrument. Well, first of all, got the money, then built the instrument um calibrated it, tested it, made sure it was going to work in the environment, launched it um, back in 1997. Uh, so I was lucky enough to go to the launch of that. And then um, we got to Saturn in 2004, um, and it's been, uh, you know, up until recently, it was exploring Saturn um, really ever since. And so some fantastic results. It's really rewritten the textbooks about the Saturn system. And, um, I mean, from our instrument, we discovered really huge hydrocarbon molecules in the atmosphere of Titan. Oh, wow. um, so that was one of our amazing discoveries, up to 14,000 um, times the mass of hydrogen. So really huge hydrocarbons. And so that could be even pre- prebiotic life. So very exciting stuff. Mm, and uh, of course, uh, Cassini made its uh, final descent um, into into Saturn uh, very recently. How how did you feel when when that mission was over? Yeah, fifteenth of September. I mean, having worked on it for so long, um, you know, it's a very bittersweet feeling that you get. Um, I mean, very sweet because, of course, the, the the instrument and the mission had really fulfilled its uh, its purpose and been able to discover lots of lots of exciting results. But bitter in a way because um, you know something which we spend years building and calibrating and testing and making sure it's going to work um, finally ends up as being part of Saturn. So literally, the whole spacecraft burnt up on the fifteenth of September to um, uh, to to become part of Saturn. And actually, I was helping the BBC with some coverage of it at the time. So there's um, myself in the BBC World Studio and. Um, Rebecca Morell in the uh, in JPL in Pasadena at, um, the, at the operation centre there, and we were doing a sort of um, down the line about it, and um, uh, and 
you know, as we were doing that, that's when the signal was lost. And that was really quite a feeling. And I have to admit, you know, a tear came to my eyes really the end of this mission. And because um, such a lot of my career um, on it. But uh, but it's been so great. And, you know, still lots of publications coming out, working with lots of PhD students. They're still getting their degrees and, um, you know, doing their own first papers on it. So really exciting stuff. And it's going to be exciting for many years to come. Oh, brilliant. And uh, of course, now that you are, you're working on the ExoMars 20 20 rover specifically the uh the 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 pan cam uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that and uh, what science you hope to do with it yes well the exomars 2020 mission is uh, is something which is going to, a rover mission which will land on the surface of mars it will be able to move around the surface but the really new thing about it is go- is being able to drill underneath the surface up to two meters so that takes it well beyond um, what previous missions could do so currently the curiosity rover is on the surface of mars that's the nasa nasa one uh, and that can drill five centimeters so we will be able to do 40 times better than that to actually get underneath um, the sort of really harsh environment on the surface of Mars to look for potential signs of life um, a long time ago. But our instrument is the Panoramic Camera System, or PANCAM for short, um, and that in itself is an international collaboration. So we're leading a team which um, involves, as well as people at UCL, uh, we have um, uh, Germany, so there's um, some the um, uh, German um, Institute uh, for Planetary Research there, and also working with industry in Germany, with industry in, in Switzerland as well, uh, with University of Aberystwyth in Wales as well, and uh, a truly international science team which goes across the continents, you know, with US, French and German and lots of different people involved in it. So we're leading this this huge team, but we're actually building the camera system, which will be the scientific eyes of the ExoMars rover. So with this, we will be able to actually select the interesting targets to look for in terms of where to actually drill um, to get to get underneath the surface to look potentially for signs of life. So it's a very exciting um, mission, a very exciting instrument. The instrument itself um, uh, includes some subsystems. So there's two wide-angle cameras, uh, which are separated by about 50 centimetres. Um, so those stand higher than a person above the surface of Mars, and so we can get very um, good stereo reconstruction near the rover. And it can also see at great distances away as well. Um, and so with that combination, we're able to do geology um, and um, and also atmospheric science. And then we have another camera, which is the, the high-resolution camera, and that can look at textures of rocks. So that helps with geology as well. So this is all part of a, a suite which is is looking at the context of where we're getting the, the samples underneath the surface from. So we're sort of deciding where to drill as a result of our scientific data. So it's a very um, sort of responsible position um, to be, you know, basically the scientific eyes, because of course, you know, it's the first thing everybody wants to know, you know, where are we, what's it look like, and and... And, but we've packed as much science as we possibly can into what is basically a camera system with uh, 11 filters on each of the wide-angle cameras. Um, and so we can do not only that geological science, but also some atmospheric science as well. Look at the water in the Mars atmosphere and dust in the Mars atmosphere as well. We can actually work out from looking at, because uh, we, we've got three filters which are um, around a, an absorption feature, a feature of water, so we can look at the t- depth that absorption feature and see how much water there is in the um, area of the Mars atmosphere above our heads and that leads into atmospheric escape so that is where my scientific interest lies in terms of uh, the analysis of data but I've got lots of people working with me on on the geology and you know working out where to drill and all this stuff and um, so I'm you know just amazed to be uh, 
part of this team and to be leading the team, which is actually uh, building this fantastic instrument. Yeah, it, it sounds absolutely incredible. And it, it seems like it's, it's going to be a very important uh, piece of, I mean, I'm sure all, all of the equipment going onto the rover is uh, important in, in its own way. Um, but it, it seems like, yeah, it, it's such a crucial part of it. And what what kind of thought goes into designing such an instrument and do you have to take into special consideration when building it compared to say a camera that will stay on earth and not be uh, sent sent off to mars yeah one of one of the key real differences of mars compared to earth um there's first of all the atmospheric pressure at the surface which is much lower it's about one percent of the earth's atmospheric pressure so obviously you've got to work in that environment but because of that low atmospheric pressure that means the radiation environment is higher on the surface so that's one one thing which is different again uh, and then the, the key really different thing, I think, is the fact that we could, we're looking at um, very low temperatures on the night side of Mars. So on the on the sort of sunlit side of Mars, it's maybe sort of Manchester on a nice-ish day of sort of zero to 20 degrees, uh, perhaps. Um, and then at night, minus 120 degrees centigrade. And every night, it goes down to that. So Mars's day, or Sol as it's called, is just over 24 hours, so a little bit longer than our day. But every day, um, the, the instrument and everything is being cycle down to that very low temperature so it's got to be able to survive that so one of the key things is to design the engineering to be able to survive that temperature um, uh, sort of swing really from from the night side to the day side and then to test it make sure it will work and so on so it's got to be extremely rugged we've also got to be very careful along the way not to take life with us from earth because uh, the mission is going to be looking for life on mars and the last thing we want to do is take terrestrial life along of course, yeah. So that, that leads me on to another question um, in that what what evidence do you look for when searching for, for signs of life? And uh, I guess also, how would you know that, that life was from Mars um, and not contamination from, from an Earth-based source or when, when you're making the rover? Yeah, so with, when we're making the rover, we're very careful about contamination. So there's something called planetary protection, which sounds uh, sounds like a racket or something. But, but <laughs> what it is, is trying to make sure that we're not taking life from Earth to Mars. Um, and so we have to be very careful about the way in which we clean everything, sterilising it at, at very high temperatures to make sure that there's a very low spore count. And this again is another of the, you know, big challenges of this type of mission compared to missions which might be going into orbit around either Mars or even Saturn. Um, I mean, there wasn't really that um, that level of detail went into th the thinking about Cassini, for example. But at the end of Cassini, that is why Cassini actually had to be burnt up in the atmosphere of Saturn, because oh, we couldn't leave it flying around um, in Saturn's environment, because it might potentially hit places like Enceladus or Titan, where life could either be or could develop in the future perhaps um so yeah the, the the making sure everything is clean enough um is important so our optical bench which actually houses all of the cameras um the two wide angle cameras and the high resolution camera uh they're housed inside an optical bench and part of the the reason for that is not just to hold the cameras with respect to each other but another thing is is to make sure the planetary protection is right so bits from the inside are not getting out and so that could potentially mess up the life detection experiments so as for detecting whether there could be life on mars i mean there's a number of, of things we're looking for there um i mean obviously to to have life develop anywhere else we need um we need the right chemistry we need um, water we need a source of heat and we need enough time for life to develop so what we're looking for is is the building blocks of life really so it's things like amino acids and uh, and then 
One important thing is chirality, so whether molecules are left-handed and right-handed, that's another thing which we can detect with this rover. And also isotopes, looking at carbon-12 and carbon-13, again, one of those is used by life, one isn't. And so we're able to sort of build up the evidence for um, not only habitability, but potentially signs of actual life. And then, of course, it would be amazing to just see from underneath the surface a fossil. That would be just amazing. And um, I mean, either way, with any of this, you know, if we would detect life, there's definitely no Nobel prizes galore in this Um, so it's a fantastic um, question it's probably one of the big questions for humankind at the moment really of um, of, is there life anywhere else in the universe and um, you know one of the places we can start looking is Mars um, and then the outer planet moons places like uh, Europa at Jupiter um, and uh, potentially although less likely Ganymede but also Callisto all of those have subsurface oceans, Jupiter's moons. Um, and so the JUICE mission will be going there in a few years' time, launching in 2022, gets to the Jupiter system in 2030, and goes into orbit around Ganymede in 2032. So it's something which my younger colleagues are going to be working on. Um, but, uh, you know, and then at Saturn, there's Enceladus and Titan, again, which are both potentially places for life. So, you know, we need to look at those three things, really, of Mars um, and then the outer planet moons, and in particular Europa and Enceladus, but also with a, a close fourth being Titan. So all of those are potentially places where, where there could either be or have been life or may even be in the future. And this is one of the things which is driving our solar system exploration at the moment. Oh, brilliant. Which one of those personally do you think is most likely to uh, be the, the place we might find life? Well, I, I think evidence? it depends when. So the next thing we're going to, of course, with this sort of thing, is Mars. So I'll have to say Mars because I, th- I think we have, it's the best chance of any mission going to Mars of actually detecting life. And so this is the uh, this is the most likely place mm-hmm. where we could potentially find it. But interestingly, from the Cassini mission at Saturn, there's been lots of um, evidence building up about Enceladus being a habitable environment and also potentially Titan as well. Um, and so there's, there's lots of evidence for that. I don't think we'll have another mission there for the next 20 or 30 years, perhaps. Then at Jupiter, the JUICE mission gets there in 2030. So I think in terms of when we're going to find it, I think it's more likely within the next few years. And we hope to do it with the ExoMars rover. Brilliant. I suppose, yeah, with with the timescales involved in uh, in missions like these, it is it is sometimes a case of where where are we going to next? I mean, ideally, I suppose we'd be uh, going to visiting everywhere we can as soon as possible. But yeah, uh... and I mean, and as a scientist, I mean, there, there are you know, there's each of them have advantages and disadvantages of whether there could have been or could be life. I mean, I think with Mars, we're really looking at the most likely thing is that perhaps there was life 3.8 billion years ago. So bearing in mind that Mars and the other planets are 4.6 billion years old, this is back in history about the same time that life was developing on Earth. So these would be very simple life forms on Mars. But at places like Enceladus and Europa, where we have subsurface oceans underneath icy crusts and the right sort of species and um, ingredients for life, there could even be life now. I mean, that is the case for Mars as well. But um, but I think, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, our, our whole perception of the habitable zone has really sort of changed, really, in the last few years with the Cassini mission, I think, to um, uh, to say, well, you know, these outer planet moons are places where you could potentially have life as well. So we, we're looking not only for water on the surface and the importance of water, where we, we know that's the case on Mars, the sort of habitable zone where we have the right radiation balance with the sunlight coming in. Um, and so, you know, you get about the right temperature, basically, for water to be there on the surface. Uh, and that 
with with Mars was the case 3.8 billion years ago. It's not now. So you know, so all of them are potentially good places to look. Um, and I think you know, my bet might be that Enceladus could be a really good place to look right now. Exciting. Um, I know also that you're, you and your group are involved with studying uh, solar wind interaction um, with, the, with the magnetic fields of uh, solar system objects. Um, what, what can studying these fields tell you about the, the conditions uh, on those planets and, and its impact on, on its ability to host life? Right. One sort of key feature with uh, with anybody, um, any you know, solar system body in the solar wind, is um, is whether it has a magnetic field. So that's a, that's a key feature. But probably we should describe the solar wind a bit as well, because the solar wind is a, is a stream of material coming out of the sun all the time. So it's a plasma, fourth state of matter beyond solid, liquid, and gas. Um, it's in this plasma state, and that interacts with different objects in the solar system. So because it's charged particles, it can depend. It can be um, sort of deflected in magnetic and electric fields. So the fact of, of a body having a magnetic field is very important um, in deflecting the solar wind, for example, around the Earth. So our home, the Earth, has its own magnetic field, um, which we know about from a lot of different um, uh, features. It, it has a magnetic field, and that protects not only us um but also our atmosphere from things like the solar wind um, flowing past, but also cosmic rays from the galaxy, so very high-energy um, particles, which are potentially problems for, for life, um, and then also from solar energetic particles, again, hundreds of millions of electron volt particles, which, again, that can be can be a problem for human systems. And so, um, uh, so the magnetic field is, is one of the key differences. And so if we look at the Earth, uh, but also Mercury, Uranus and Neptune, Saturn and Jupiter, all of these have magnetic fields, and they vary in scale going up hugely and so jupiter the really enormous magnetic field in the solar system saturn is second um, earth is somewhere down the rankings um, but uh, but nevertheless it's been important for us in in life developing on earth and so I, mean, I think in some sense the magnetic field provides a bit of a cradle for life and so the existence of a magnetic field is is important for life developing on any particular object so it's not just the balance of temperatures which mean you've got water but there's also the um uh, the, the fact that the radiation conditions have to be right which means having a magnetic field so mars for example is one of the objects which does not have a magnetic field but it does have an atmosphere um and so the atmosphere is now relatively thin compared to the earth's atmosphere but we think that 3.8 billion years ago it was much thicker, and there's evidence for that is building up now from the from the recent missions, including Mars Express and Maven. Um, and so those um, missions are showing us that Mars's atmosphere was probably at least our the atmospheric pressure that we have on Earth now, um, and probably there was it was a very temperate climate with clouds, water on the surface, and all this sort of thing. And so about the same conditions that life was um, uh, developing on Earth at around about the same time. So, you know, this is why we think that Mars is maybe the the most likely nearby candidate for hosting life. Venus, which also lacks a magnetic field, is too warm. Um, and runaway greenhouse effect, Runaway right? greenhouse effect, yeah. So the surface, you know, you can melt lead on the surface. Oh, wow. Very thick atmosphere, um, very hostile for life, carbon dioxide. Yes, exactly. Greenhouse gone mad. And, um, uh, and so, and that 
you know, there may have been water early on, um, but that was lost pretty quickly and started off the greenhouse effect, and that's been kept going by this carbon dioxide, no liquid water on the surface, unlike the Earth. And so the Earth and Mars are maybe the right sort of things for a, for a habitable zone. But then the idea of the habitable zone having changed, really, to include these anywhere where conditions are right, including these outer solar system moons of uh, particularly Europa and Enceladus and Titan. Um, so these are now sort of coming up into the top three or four places to look for life um, elsewhere than Earth. Fascinating stuff. Um, I think we've got time for one one last question. So you mentioned a couple of uh, upcoming uh, missions uh, to various bodies in our solar system. If you yourself could uh, fully design and uh, send off a some kind of rover or probe uh, into space, what what kind of mission would would you like to see happen? Ideally, for your for your own personal interest. Well, for my own personal interest, I think a return to Titan would be fantastic. Um, Titan, and if you can do Enceladus as well, that would be great. Um, both of those um, are potential places for life. Um, and so what we really need to do is very high-resolution mass spectro- uh, spectroscopy in the uh, in the plumes of Enceladus and also in the atmosphere of Titan. Um, at the very top of the atmosphere, we've discovered very large organic molecules, up to 14,000 AMU. And, um, and those are sort of prebiotic. And so studying that in more detail tells us about how life could have kicked off on the early Earth, actually, because the atmosphere is much like the early, the early Earth. And then at Enceladus, we may have life there now. We might be able to get the evidence from this sort of chemical analysis of those plumes. So for me, that would be a really exciting mission to um, uh, to go to, but um, but we want to go to Mars first because the the the, uh, the possibility of the being light, you know, it's relatively close, relatively accessible. All we have to do is drill up to two meters underneath the surface, which we'll do the, with the ExoMars rover. So I'm just very excited about the next few years of space exploration. Brilliant. Well, uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled for for news about that mission. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Uh, but thanks again for joining us, Andrew. Pleasure. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Nice to be here.